Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we continue our series in the book of Colossians, and here the guys will be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 25, discussing the hierarchical roles of wives and husbands, children and parents, fathers and children, and slaves and masters. There is still time to register for our upcoming intensive course here in Birmingham on a theology of history. That course will be with Richard Bledsoe, Peter Lightheart, and special guest James Jordan, and will be taking close looks at works by Oregon Rosenstock Husey and Augustine, and is sure to be an excellent time of teaching and worship. Looking ahead, we have our upcoming Theopolitan Ministry Conference. The theme of this year's conference is Vision of Victory, and during that week we will also have our Trinity Feast with special guest Esther Meek. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation over these texts. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing Colossians chapter 3. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background. Uh, Jeff Myers, who is uh, usually with us, is uh, away on presbytery business, and uh, will be back with us shortly. Uh, We are in the middle, uh, actually toward the end of a series of studies in the Letter of the uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, we've gone through the first two and a half chapters, and we're going to take up the last part of chapter three and the early part of chapter four here today. And in this section, Paul's uh, we're beginning in chapter three, verse eighteen. In this section, Paul is beginning to speak directly to different groups of people within the church. And it, of course, it's always important to see this in the overall context uh, of the letter. Paul's not giving these instructions to wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and masters out of the blue. These exhortations grow out of his proclamation of the gospel, his explanation of the life that's demanded of those who have died with Christ and are now hid with Christ in God, the putting off of the old man and the earthly man, the putting off of these vices, the putting on of uh, new virtues that we talked about in the last episode, All of that's in the background, and then he's applying those teachings directly to different categories of people within the church. Another way to think about this is to say that this is, uh, N.T. Wright points out that there's a creation, new creation kind of dynamic going on throughout Colossians. Uh, Early in Colossians, Jesus is presented as the creator, the one through whom and for him all things were made. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn. He is the head. Uh, and he's also the agent of new creation. And that new creation is takes specific individual form in the lives of individual believers in this process of dying and rising again, dying to sin and rising again in righteousness. Uh, and it also transforms the structure and the operation of households, which is the focus that Paul has here at the, uh, in this section of Colossians 3 in the beginning of chapter 4. So this is about how new creation works itself out in the day-to-day habits and practices and structures of Christian families and Christian households. This is one of several examples of what uh, scholars have called household rules. Paul Paul uh, addresses different different groups of people and instructs them about how they're to live within the household. And he kind of moves concentrically, first of all, addressing Wives and husbands, 
the central relationship in a, in a household and a family. Then a couple of verses about children and parents and uh, specifically about fathers and their children. So you move from the marriage to the immediate children. And then the last uh, section is dealing with slaves and masters, which is the wider household more widely conceived. So you've moved from marriage to family to household, which includes slaves. Um, and in the process, Paul brings up or names or uh, uh, addresses seven different groups, wives, husbands, children, parents, first of all, in verse 20, and then specifically fathers in verse 21, then slaves in verse 22, and then masters in the first verse of, of chapter four. So seven different categories of people, but they're arranged in, uh, again, in these three concentric circles, and each of these circles has a kind of fundamental binary relationship between husbands and wives in the first instance, children and parents, specifically fathers in the second instance, and then slaves and masters in the third instance. And it's, it's interesting that Paul, in each of these cases, he begins with an address to the person in, the, uh, in this relationship, in this hierarchical relationship that is subordinate. So wives first, who are subject to their husbands, and then husbands children who are obedient to the parents, and then fathers, slaves who are must obey their masters, and then masters. So he begins at the, in, in the lower rung. And, and again, interestingly, that is, a, is addressing them directly. So these are, this is a letter that would be read, that was read in the Colossian church. It was a circulating letter, said so it would go to other churches. And in each of those letters, you have one of the Lord Jesus, one of the apostles of the Lord Jesus, directly talking to wives as well as to husbands, directly talking to children as well as to fathers, directly talking to slaves as well as to masters. The Lord Jesus doesn't just delegate his apostle to speak to the heads of these different relationships, but he speaks to both members of the relationship and in fact begins in each case with the one that's lower in this hierarchical relationship. Uh, one last comment before we op- oh, before we begin discussing specifics. Uh, these household rules have often been condemned as um, high bound and conservative. Paul is just uh, reiterating and reinforcing with a Christian gloss. He's just reinforcing kind of Greco-Roman values in a Greco-Roman household. Uh, he's reinforcing patriarchy by telling wives to be subject to their husbands. He's reinforcing the uh, standard Roman practice of institution, the paterfamilias, who has absolute control of his family. He's um, endorsing slavery. He doesn't tell masters to free their slaves. So the complaint is often brought against these uh, passages in Paul's letters that they're conservative and they're, they're just reinforcing, giving a, just giving a, a Christian gloss on what are basically pagan customs and pagan kinds of relationships. Uh, I think that's that's not the that's not the right way to re- right way to read these exhortations, partly for the reason I just mentioned, because he is addressing wives, children, and slaves directly. The Lord Jesus has instructions for them, uh, and each of them can live a life of the new creation. Each one of them can live a life of virtue. A life of virtue is not reserved for husbands and fathers and masters. Uh, everyone in the household can live a life of virtue, a life in conformity with Christ. Uh, that's shaped and, 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 and inflected by his particular role within the household. 
Uh, and the other thing that uh, reason why this isn't a good way to read it is that the specific instruction that Paul gives, Paul's instructions are at odds with what would be a standard household arrangement in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, and particularly the way that he dignifies slaves. We'll get to this in more detail in just a moment, but the way that Paul dignifies slaves and kind of um, he introduces categories and, and uh, a theology that relativizes the relationship between master and slave. Um, and specifically because the master and slave are, are conceived, reconceived, that relationship is reconceived within a Christian setting. So even though he's uh, in some ways affirming these household relationships as uh, as part of a part of a, a, a right and good structure in the household uh, but the specific instructions he gives are kind of transforming them uh, from within and transforming the household from within yes and and there's a nuance to a lot of it isn't there because as you say these structures are seen as as sort of uh, part of a, a right order and people uh, wives have spoken to uh, to do what is fitting or, or, or proper or, or, or something like that. So there's an acknowledgement of it, but at the same time, there's an acknowledgement that it's, it's, it is tainted by um, a, a fallen world. And I think that comes back to your point about this being, uh, this reflecting a new creation outworking into an old um, and fallen creation. And so, for instance, in the context of the, um, commands of the um, servants and how they behave towards their masters. Um, it said at the end, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And so it's kind of presupposing this situation where slaves are badly treated and part of what's to um, encourage them in submission and obedience is that ultimately um their masters have a superior master um, who, who will um, address injustice and, and, and won't behave partially. And um, likewise, you know, um, the wives are told to submit to husbands as if there will be um, a natural inclination not to do so. The husbands are told not to be harsh with their wives and sort of similarly not to provoke their children as if men will have a, a natural inclination to be harsh or overbearing or whatever it is and so there's um yeah there's a presupposition that all these things are tainted by the by the fall um but can be part of a, a proper order yeah i think that that's a that's a very important point that paul is correcting uh, implicitly correcting abuses within the household on you know in on every side and also uh, again affirming the rightness of certain kinds of relationships uh, and and hierarchical relationships. Each of these is a is a is has a has a hierarchical structure to it. Husbands and wives. Wives are to be subjected to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. So there's a there is some some sort of uh, some sort of hierarchy between husbands and wives. Uh, parents and children a different sort of hierarchy. Children are told to be obedient to parents. That's not the word that Paul uses in verse eighteen with regard to wives. Slaves are supposed to be obedient to masters. That's the same terminology is used for children. So in each of these cases, there is a, a, a hierarchical relationship, which uh, I think Paul is endorsing. He's implicitly acknowledging that this is this is a this is a right this is a right way for social life to be ordered. In fact, in you know in certain respects, I think you know some kind of hierarchy is inherent in any kind of social relationship. I think that. The parent-children, parent-child relationship is a, is an inter particularly interesting one, 
parents have physical strength, wisdom, experience of the world that their children do not have. And so in the in a child's minority, it's in the child's best interest to defer to the parents who are further down the line of life and experience. That doesn't mean the parents are necessarily good parents, but uh, they have they have something that the children don't yet have. But that's a kind of hierarchy that balances over time, as it were. So as as children grow, I think about my relationship with my own grown children. I'm still their still their father. I still have a kind of status that they don't have, but we're much more on an equal footing than we were when they were growing up and, you know, when they were toddlers or when they were preteens or even when they were teenagers. Over time, they were growing into adult responsibilities and uh, the the relationship between us was was becoming a different sort of relationship of, still had a hierarchical dimension to it, but it's more like a uh, more something that more becomes more like a, a balance and a, uh, a more equitable relationship over time. But, but the hierarchy was inherent. It's like a, it's like a hierarchy between teachers and students. The teacher is, Rose Lachisi says, the teacher is older in the material that he's teaching than the student is. But the goal is that the student becomes like his teacher. And so that the student becomes a colleague of the teacher and is raised up to be a a collaborator with the teacher or even a teacher of the teacher. But hierarchy is inherent just in the fact that we live in a temporal world. And for certain kinds of hierarchy, that the nature of the hierarchy and the shape of the hierarchy is uh, is altered over time. I'd be keen to get your thoughts on perhaps the um, uh, the relationships between these hierarchies and creation, because I'm not entirely clear that I've, I've got it sorted in my head at the moment. I mean, the the order here is obviously the order of creation, you know, so um, wives and husbands, Adam and Eve are um, created and that's part of a, a, a pre-full world. Um, children presumably would have been part of a pre-full world, um, but aren't, but that's the next relationship that, that we see um, instantiated. Um, the most problematic of these three, which again follows the chronological order, um, at least in Paul's um description of it, I, I think, because of this reference to the wrongdoer in verse 25, is between um, servants and masters. And the concept of um, a man being in servitude to another, I think, first occurs in in Noah's um, story um, uh, as a, a punishment for Ham's um, behaviour. And so it, it feels significant to me that the most kind of troubling of these relationships as Paul addresses them is one that comes in explicitly as a result of a curse in the Genesis account. Um, but yeah, I, I'd, be, I'd be keen to know what you think of that as, as an idea. I, I agree with all of that. Then um, contrary to what some feminists or feminist inclined commentators say, I think that the husband and wife relationship as having a, a certain kind of hierarchical structure is part of creation. Uh, when Paul talks about this in First Timothy, he links it to the priority of Adam's creation. Also in First Corinthians, that Adam was created first, and then Eve, the the man was not made created as a helpmeet for the woman, but the woman for the man. So there is a kind of priority priority uh, that's uh, that's built into creation. I think uh, certainly right about parents and children. I agree completely that ma- the master slave relationship is a result of the fall. I don't think that means that. 
uh, relationships of authority are part of the fall. I think we can imagine an unfallen world where uh, there's still tasks that need to be done and tasks that need to be coordinated that have to be coordinated by someone. So uh, I agree with the, you know, in t- terms of political pol- political I- political thought, I, I agree with the Thomistic idea that political society is part of the natural existence of man and not 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 simply a correction for the fall. But that wouldn't take the form of ownership of other human beings without in an unfallen world. So I think slavery is it is a fallen institution. It's a part of the old creation, and you're right; it stands out in this setting uh, for that reason. It's not the same; doesn't have the same kind of natural rooting, the rooting in creation that uh, the immediate family relations have. Paul doesn't deal with it here, but um, elsewhere you'll find treatments of the relationship between the individual and the subject and the king or the political authority, which would seem to be, in many respects, somewhere between the relationship between fathers and children and um, masters and slaves. It has characteristics of both, and often you'll find the extension of the principle of submission to parents into submission to temporal authorities, kings, um, Levites, and um, priests and these other temporal authorities and spiritual authorities that are given charge over us in some respect. And that is, in some sense, a continuation of aspects of the condition of childhood. Paul can deal, for instance, with the situation of childhood as analogous to that of the slave. And we could turn that round the other way and see the ways in which we can be subject to authorities as a continuation of our childhood, where there are, as it were, parental figures that exercise authority over aspects of our lives and society, and that we submit to them as children might their parents. I think one of the things I do find with these commandments that or instructions that can be more of a challenge for us, often our instinct is to say, this is radical, Paul is trying to push back subtly and undermine certain aspects of the um, social vision that you'd have within these societies. And there is certainly that subversive element when you think about the effect of the gospel on the slave-master relationship, and both being addressed with commandments that challenge them to think about how their relationship is mediated by their relationship with Christ. There is something that transforms things there. But yet, often, those things are not foregrounded. For instance, here, as we'll have, unlike what we have in Ephesians, there's no discussion of the duties of masters to their parents, to their servants. And so there isn't the same subversive dimension of it. It seems to be rather more conservative. And that conservative element of Pauline ethics is maybe one of the more scandalizing things for us in our society, that Paul wasn't actually thinking of overturning the society. Much of what you'll read in here in a passage like Colossians 3 or Ephesians 5 is stuff you'd find reading Plutarch's Morals or um, reading Xenophon. These are not actually that radical in terms of the, the wider society. There are points where there are changes and challenges, but much of what's being said is it's underwriting this certain aspects of the social order, but doing so on a different ground. And so it's no longer simply on the basis of the natural character of this order. Often it can be 
related to the Lord, that you submit to your husbands, not just because the man is um, naturally over women in every single respect, but because you do so to the Lord. And that conservative or sort of radical conservatism um, is an aspect of Pauline theology that I think scandal, scandalizes people from all sides. On the one hand, those who want the revolutionary overturning of the social order. And on the other hand, those who want to simply reaffirm the social order in its current form and the um, theoretical and ideological undergirding that has been there to that point. And when you begin to take both aspects of Pauline theology, the radical aspect, where he's actually challenging some of the conceptual frameworks within which we consider these things, and then the conservative element, where he's actually underwriting, underwriting many of these social orders, we actually get a far more interesting and generative approach to these relationships than we would do otherwise. So the relationship between master and servant is transformed, but not in the way of the radical revolution. But that relationship is reconceived in a way that makes it almost impossible to continue in its typical form. Same with the relationship between wives and husbands in some respect, without actually just overturning the order of marriages that existed within that society. And so trying to do justice to both aspects of Pauline theology on these um, household commandments, I think is a challenge, particularly for those of us who maybe have this instinctive desire to want Paul to throw out the whole ancient order, which he doesn't. Alistair, would you say that um, part of that, or you as well, Peter, would you say that part of that is a recognition within Pauline thought that these um, orders can be very good and flourishing for society. Um, I mean, something that I think many people have been convicted of over the last couple of years is the um, evils and difficulties of very totalitarian um, governments and overbearing governments um, in in, uh, one respect or another. Um, But clearly, um, anarchies are awful places to live as well and and the most kind of basic um uh, amenities are, are almost impossible to get hold of in, in various um anarchies and um do, do you think that part of what paul is wanting to do is to um uh is to preserve some kind of order in societies it seems to me that would be part of it um as you say and i think this is something that you find within the reformation the sense that Tyranny is really bad, but anarchy is even worse. And so the importance of retaining some sort of order. But when you're you're trying to challenge the corruption of an order, you almost need to brace other aspects of it. In order to remove certain structures, um, you have to reinforce other aspects of those structures um, in order to have the um, support sufficient to actually dismantle and change other key aspects of their corruption. And it seems to me in the relationship between husbands and wives, if that's going to be reformed, you almost need something retaining that order. Same with the relationship between slaves and masters. A revolution, the overturning of the whole reality and a reversion to a state of disorder and anarchy is not actually going to be effective in in the long run. It will just set these parties over against each other. But if in love and submission, there is a support for some sort of order, 
there's a lot more room, I think, for reforming of those areas where there are clear dysfunctions and sins and embedded evils within a system. And so I think we see this in the relationship between slaves and masters as it plays out within the New Testament um, in places like Philemon, that you can see this is a fundamentally um, fallen system. And yet, as the gospel has its leavening effect within it, certain elements of it can can be retained while its internal moment is completely transformed. And so that relationship between slave and master that's reconceived according to a gospel pattern is one that enables the society to be transformed otherwise than through revolution, which is so often what fallen humanity instinctively gravitates to. But yet the gospel, I think, allows for other forms of social transformation that don't involve violence as their primary um, form of recourse. There are other ways to transform things. And that transformation through love and submission seems paradoxical, but yet the Gospels and um, I think the Epistles all talk about this as a way in which things can be changed. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on all that. Um, one on the anarchy totalitarian thing. Um, there's one sense in which I think that's that's true. Calvin says things like that. On the other hand, a totalitarian system is a kind of anarchy because it's it uh, it is defiant of law. So I'm, I don't think that there is the social circumstances that you know life on the ground may be quite different. But it's um, I don't think they're as starkly opposed as as uh, as y'all were suggesting. The other thing I wanted to highlight. I'm not disagreeing. With the general point that you're making, Alistair, I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that I think are uh, in the slave master part, especially where Paul is striking, I think, pretty pretty radically, to put to use that term, pretty radically at the existing relationship between masters and servants. I just wanted to clarify one thing. It sounded like you said that Paul doesn't give any instructions to masters here, but for one, he does. He says, grant your slaves justice and fairness. That may be something that echoes things in, in uh, Greco-Roman ethics. Masters should treat their, their uh, slaves fairly. I don't know if that's normal or not. But the justification for that, this gets to the point you were making, is a pretty massive one, which is that the masters, the curio, curioi, have a curios in heaven. The word curios is used seven times in this section, only twice to refer to human masters. And the other times all to refer to the Lord Christ, to Jesus as the master. But the fact that you have masters are not are placed in this subordinate position as themselves servants, Paul doesn't explicitly say that, but if they have a master in heaven, that they are themselves servants, that again relativizes the relationship between them. Uh, when Paul um, begins to give exhortations to the slaves, he says, slaves in all things Obey those who are your fleshly masters, and masters according to the flesh, and then immediately turns their their gaze away from those fleshly masters to the heavenly Lord, whom they actually serve. He has a couple of contrasts between doing things not as men pleasers, but for the Lord, for the Lord rather than for men. In verse twenty three, and the whole, the reference to flesh or earthliness puts the master on the level of the things to which the slave, the believing slave has died. 
he died and his life is now hid with Christ and God. And so you have, yeah, I, I agree. He's not, he's not proposing a, 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 an overturning of slavery, uh, but he is pretty dramatically changing the terms of how slaves should regard themselves and how masters, Christian masters should regard themselves. The other uh, larger context for this is the use of slave terminology for Paul's own companions at the end of the letter and at the beginning of the letter. He talks about people who are with him as servants of Christ, and now he's using the same kind of terminology to talk to slaves. So there's a pretty, again, a dramatic elevation of the slave, a promise that the slave is going to share in the inheritance that the saints, all the holy ones are sharing in. Uh, Verse 24 refers to the reward of the inheritance, which Paul has referred to before. So at one level, yes, a conservative set of exhortations, but I think that the, the specifics are pretty dramatically reconceiving the relationship between masters and slaves in a way that makes the, the, uh, the treatment in Philemon, I mean, the treatment of Philemon is very consistent with what Paul is saying here. Uh, Onesimus goes back to Philemon, that is, the slave is sent back to his master, but Paul is urging Philemon to receive him as a brother rather than as, uh, as somebody in this, in this uh, social relationship. So, um, so yeah, I, I, you're right that it's the you need to capture both dimensions of that. But I think my inclination would be to highlight those things where Paul is as uh, uh, subverting the 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 uh, the rationale for Greco-Roman slavery. One of which, I mean, um, one one rationale would be that slaves are naturally slaves. That's certainly not the way that um, that Paul is describing it. And um, so the 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 ideological or theological or philosophical basis on which slavery is built is definitely being attacked and undermined. I want to go back to, to the, to the opening binary where he talks about wives and husbands. Uh, this is again, and to start with your point, Alistair, this is a, in some ways, a conservative claim. Greco-Roman wives would have been told to be subject to their husbands. I don't know that husbands would have been exhorted to love their wives as Paul does. And certainly not, in the way that he does in Ephesians, love your wives as Christ loved the church, which means uh, love in a self-sacrificing way. Uh, the uh, C.S. Lewis has a comment in uh, oh his uh, book on courtly love. I can't remember the title of it now. Where he, he's talking about the, the the difference that Christianity made in uh, in uh, notions of romantic love in particular. But he talks about for an ancient husband, the wife was part of his possessions as part of his household. Uh, he talks about uh, Odysseus and Penelope as kind of the closest that um, closest that a, uh, an ancient closest thing you get to an ancient portrait of kind of uh, an affectionate husband-wife relationship, but it doesn't certainly doesn't have the romantic dimensions that uh, late medieval and then into modern modern conceptions of marriage do. Uh, and I'm not saying Paul is Paul is romantic in his conception of. Uh, uh, husband-wife relationship, but that is it. That that romantic notion of marriage is a development from Christianity, I think, because it is a it's developing from this Christological understanding of a husband's love for his wife, a husband who's willing to give himself for the sake of his wife, is a is the kind of the deep background to the the uh, the romantic notions that we have that. Uh, that begin to form overtly in the 
uh, in the late Middle Ages and and come to flowering in the in maybe in the nineteenth century. I wonder if we could just explore the general sense of the command to submit um, here for wives to submit to husbands because um, I mean I, I think in some senses there can be a danger to see um, the command to submit to to associate it with submissiveness and then it almost be conceived of in terms of like a mindless um going along with, with something and um uh, a very um a very passive um activity and you, I, I don't think that it, it has to be framed um that way you know the the concept of submission obviously is predicated on some sort of disagreement in in the first place you know if i'm to submit let's say to um authorities at my church to an elder at church or something um if the church is being run the way i think it should be run in the, in the first place then there's very little submission going on, on on my part there i'm basically just attending a church and doing the sort of things that i would freely choose to do um anyway you know so the the command i think presupposes some sort of um disagreement and i think the act of submission there can be something that is a bit more of a, a a settled and active decision so you know there is something going on here um i disagree with it perhaps i i think it's um a wife could say perhaps i, I think this is um wrong and that my husband will be kind of called to account for such and such a thing um but i will uh choose uh, at the moment to um uh to go along with to to submit to my husband's authority and um that feels a lot more of a a settled decision than what's sometimes envisaged by the term of of being submissive i'm not sure i'd hold that it's helpful to think of it either as a passive going along or as a decision in the context of disagreement i think submission is a much broader thing than that um submission is a sort of tractability to the other party that is um, present and in effect in situations where there is no sorts of disagreement. Um, it can be a sort of willingness to be led by or to work with or to move with that other party. You can think about our willingness to, and our desire to hear out someone else, to be persuaded by them. It's a form of submission or a, a concern to put their interests ahead of our own in, um, certain things, not necessarily in contexts of conflict, but just more generally this desire to work with that other party. And I wonder whether in our understandings of submission, by framing it so much in terms of these situations of conflict, we've lost the sense of the broader positive aspect of that submission, that submission is the question of who has the deciding vote in a situation of disagreement, rather than thinking about what does it mean, for instance, to submit to Christ. It's not always a matter of going against our will. Rather, it's a conforming of our will to that of Christ. Even in situations where it's not directly felt as a conflict between our will and Christ's will, but it's a pursuing of his will. We want to be well-pleasing to him. We want to be persuaded and moved by what he wants in our lives. And so that submission, I think, is a far more active thing. It's not just the passive going along, 
but nor is it the decision to, to allow that person to have their way in a situation of disagreement. I think much of the time, submission is most clearly seen in situations where there is no necessary conflict, but there's a direct pursuit of concord, um, which is a different thing from just um, giving way in conflict. And so when we're having relationships between husbands and wives, it, it should be the pursuit of the husband who should love their wives, should be acting in a way that seeks to honor and to seek their good. And on the other hand, wives should be submitting to, being tractable to, being pursuing concord and harmony with. There is a far more positive commonality that is in view here than merely the avoidance or um, stepping back from conflict. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I think, James, you're, what you're talking about would be one situation where submission would be uh, evident. But I think I don't I agree with Alistair that it, it isn't confined to that. Now, I think about a couple of, couple of quick thoughts on the whole on that whole question. One is that the I think of maybe maybe a large example would be something like, uh, what is it that's setting the direction for a, a family or household's tenor and life and you know standard of living or location? What are the determining factors in that? And uh, if the man is the head of the household, I think in large measure, that means what's determining those things is going to be his particular vacation, his particular calling before the Lord. And then the wife is ensuring that that calling is achieved and effective. So, I mean, my own, my own family, we've, uh, we've moved from place to place. The moves have always done, been done either for my education. We've moved to go to seminary. We moved to get my PhD. We moved to take a new job out in Idaho. We moved back to Birmingham to start Theopolis. Uh, each of those moves had been uh, determined by my my calling, and what uh, what my wife has done is what Alistair is describing is to so it's a not just a not just a uh, going along with decisions that are made. Obviously, I'm not going to make decisions like that without uh, gaining her wisdom and consulting and and making sure that she's uh, willing and on board with what we're doing. But the direction is determined by my vocation, and then my wife is uh, supporting that direction and making sure that it's it's uh, fruitful. Making sure that what we, the moves that we make and the decisions that we make as a family are are going to be uh, are going to flourish. Another thing, another point I want to make is a point that Jim Jim Jordan makes a lot when he looks at the Old Testament situation, and that is that women in the Old Testament have far more independence than we tend to think that they have. Sarah has her own tent. She seems to have her own household, sub-household within the, within the clan of Abraham. I mean, Abraham's got a, he's a, a small traveling town uh, with uh, 300-some fighting men who presumably have families. So um, it's a complex social structure that he's ruling. And within that, Sarah has her own independent space. There's indications in the law that women would have their own independent sources of wealth. The Proverbs 31 woman is not an aberration in the Old Testament with her kind of independent activities and, and engagement in the, in the marketplace and so on. What you find in the Old Testament is not like a, a proto-Victorian system where the woman cedes all of her property into the husband's name and the, she can't make any financial decisions or business decisions without her husband. It's much, women had much more independence uh, than, uh, 
again, that we tend to think and, and then women had in some modern settings. So the biblical pattern of submission doesn't necessarily, doesn't mean that women don't have certain kinds of leadership and headship roles within the family. I mean, in, in verse uh, 20 here in Colossians 3, children are to be obedient to parents. So fathers and mothers are included in that as in the, as in the fifth commandment, as throughout the Proverbs. It's the father who's instructing the son, but the father in instructing the son is regularly reminding him that he should submit to the teaching and the Torah of his mother. So um, within this structure of the household, the husband is the head, the husband is um, the one who sets the direction, uh, the wife is to be subject, but that doesn't leave her without any kind of room for independent action. And it doesn't mean she doesn't exercise authority in some kind of, uh, in some kind of, uh, a subordinate way, even within the household. And the last thing I was going to say, sorry to monologue here, but the last thing I was going to say is the the way that Paul's exhortation in, uh, especially as the form it takes in Ephesians 5, the way it harmonizes the relationship between husbands and wives. So wives are to be subject to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So wives are subject, but then husbands give themselves for the sake of the wife so there's a kind of self-subjection of the husband to the wife if he's acting in a Christ-like way. That doesn't mean that he's not leading. It means that he's leading in a way that is actually for the, for, in the best interests of his wife and um, best serves his wife and, and uh, provides for his wife in the way that Christ provides for his church. John, John Ahern, one of our Theopolis instructors who teaches on music, had a, a, a superb article on First Things a while back about harmony. And he points out that in the classic sense of harmony, a harmonious marriage would not be uh, the husband singing the melody and the wife doing some chords underneath or singing, you know, singing alto to kind of, but rather both the husband and the wife would have their own uh, melodies that would intersect and harmonize with one another. They would have more independent voices, but those voices would be, there'd be an order to those voices, but those voices would intersect and be, be harmonious, not as one dominant voice with one, with one just just providing a gloss, but two harmonious two voices that are that are uh, mingled and harmonious with one another. That's more the classical idea of harmony, and that does seem to be closer to the biblical picture of what marriage is supposed to look like. When reading these um, instructions, it's also worth, as you've been noting, Peter, keeping in mind the character of the ancient households. The far broader and thicker realm of relationships, uh, intergenerational relations, extended family relations, um, contexts within which there would be business taking place, the wider life of the society passing itself on through education, through care. And we tend to think about the household in very constricted ways, simply because of modern society where most of those activities have been outsourced to and business places to schools to hospitals and other agencies that do those things for us and yet when Paul's dealing with these range of relationships he's dealing with not the um, domestic realm that's cut off from the life and activity of the society but a domestic domestic realm that's very much at the heart of everything that's taking place in the society and so when we tend to hear these commandments, we're thinking in terms of modern households, which have been shaped through a number of different 
developments in um, industrial and post-industrial society. And I think we can easily miss just the degree to which the household ethics would be at the very heart of everything within the society. It's not just a domestic realm set apart from all the other activities. This is where everything is happening in some form or other. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.